Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. I don't even know how to start this episode. I thought I had something, but we've just been sitting here refreshing feeds, talking to people, and every two seconds there's brand new news. Folks, this is a public service announcement. The information in this podcast and anywhere in the hockey world is only good for like three seconds at a time. It can expire at any moment. So listen to this as soon as humanly possible. This is the most, the single most insane day, not even just uh, for the Detroit Red Wings, but across the NHL trade deadline since we started this podcast. Knowing, you know, in over 600 episodes and over eight years of doing this show, it's bizarre to be able to look at you know, get ready for today's episode and say this is guaranteed to be the single biggest episode we've ever done. And we know for a fact that there's going to be major news dropping sometime soon after we hit publish. Remember on Sunday when we said we expect a quiet week from the Red Wings? Oh, whoops. <laughs> we talked about whiplash at the start of the other episode. It's still happening. The only the only thing that at least saved me personally from looking even dumber than I usually already do <laughs> is I said, if they collect zero points out of a possible four from Ottawa, it completely changes everything. That, that one little throwaway line. Well, boy, did that carry more weight than I wanted it to every, well, t- I, there's two catalysts and we're going to get to them at some point this episode. The Tanner Genot trade, I think, changed things not just across the NHL, um, but specifically for Steve Eisenman. And like you said, Brad, they lost against Tampa, and then they had two crucial games against uh, a wild card opponent that they could have knocked out of the race. And not only did they lose both in regulation, they got absolutely bullied, dummied out there on the ice. And it was, frankly, it was a statement from Ottawa, and it was a big statement in a negative way for Detroit, no doubt that Eisman was looking at that game and made some decisions, which set things in motion for Ottawa as well. Yeah, there those, was a, those two games changed the balance of the <laughs> of the Atlantic Division of, in at least more than a fraction of a way. The of the Atlantic Division of the Red Wings rebuild of what the next year or two might look like. Regardless, folks, as you can see, we are overwhelmed by how much we have to talk to you about, so we're just going to get this started. Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast, here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and all of the insane trade deadline dealings happening right now. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. If you are a returning listener, enjoy. I'm sure this is going to be a a, a memorable one for you. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I'm Brad Crisco. And I'm Evan. On this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, I want to disclaim, we are recording right now as I speak at a 7.09 p.m. Eastern. So this is the information we have right now. Dylan Larkin has re-signed, has uh, signed his extension in Detroit. That national nightmare is over. The captain is staying in Hockey Town for eight years. We're going to talk about that. Jake Wallman, who his contract would be the headline of any other episode by its own right, has extended in Detroit for three years. So Texas Roadhouse... Uh, is cheering as well as Jake Wallman fans everywhere, as well as Mo Sider, his his top pairing line mate. That's small news. Philip Hronik was traded in a uh, a shock to most people to Vancouver for a massive return, especially relative to what Jacob Chikrin got traded for not long afterwards. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the catalyst that set things in motion for Steve Eisenman to move in a direction where he was going to make deals. 
We'll talk about the players on the trading block for Detroit. Tyler Bertuzzi's name is back out there. Philip Zadina's name is out there. There are going to be many other names who are options for Detroit to move. We'll talk about what is next for the trade deadline over these next uh, couple of days, what this means for Detroit's future, the Atlantic division. Is this a reset? Do they go after a Colton Pareko? Uh, What could possibly be happening next? And then we are going to try to cover whatever we can across the NHL. Yes, every player in the league was traded over the last five days. It honestly feels like it. Evan, actually, you've been traded to the Steve Dangle podcast and back since we started this episode. So welcome back. Wow. Yeah, we had to spend a first round pick to get you back. They must have had some salary retained then. Yes, they did. Yeah. yeah. It's Lucky Brad- for you. <laughs> Brad, the 30 minutes Brad and I had to do without you at the end of the last episode was really tough, so we weren't a big fan of that. Really enjoyed Jesse's company, though. It was actually funny. Um, you know who broke the the Steve Dangle? or oh. The Steve Dangle trade. <laughs> you know who broke the, the Philip Hronick trade to us was Steve Dangle. He texted us, and I was outside shoveling. I was at work. And he said... WTF and I just sent some question marks back because that was the first thing I saw on my phone and then I had messages from a few other people and then I saw Twitter I was like I looked away from my phone for five minutes yeah I, I saw on my you know on your lock screen when you yeah. when your face uh, opens it I'm like WTF immediately first thought uh oh yeah I thought Bertuzzi was traded to Toronto or something and somehow I was more surprised when he actually said what it was yeah uh okay very, very quickly before we jump into the uh, the content here, uh, folks, if you want to support the Winged Wheel podcast, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast is uh, one of the ways to do it. Our patrons are the heart and soul of the show and they're the reason why we're able to have, you know, uh, an emergency episode when we need to, a massive episode tonight, a trade deadline review episode, which will be coming Friday night as well. So there's going to be a lot of content this week. All of that happens because of our patron. They get access to our Winged Wheel podcast Discord. They get entered into all of our giveaways. We're giving away two tickets to every Detroit Red Wings home game this season. The majority of them going to patrons. Uh, in addition to that, they also get access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, episodes which record right after these ones, where we answer uh, any con- uh, questions and comments that didn't make the main show, let loose, have fun, uh, and just uh, generally have a good time. So patreon.com slash podcast if you want to support the show. All right. Also, uh, for those watching, this is going to be a very heavy check the notifications episode, so bear with us on that one. Let's start with the big news today, presuming that something didn't break already. I Uh, mean, a trade did just break, but it's not relevant to the Red Wings. Dylan Larkin, the captain in Hockey Town, re-signs. It is finally over. Steve Eisman gets it done before the trade deadline passes. It all happened very quickly um, in terms of uh, things being reported as as moving closer, we got word that uh, things had kind of nudged in a direction, uh, looking towards some finality here, and it ended up in this Wednesday afternoon a eight year, eight point seven million dollars per year contract for Dylan Larkin. So he comes in under nine million, uh, a little bit above the Bo Horvat number, eight point seven million per year. Uh, some details: no signing bonuses. Most of the base salary is front loaded. The, uh, the first three years of the contract are $10, $11, and $10 million, respectively. Um, a full no-trade clause for the first five years and the last three years is a limited no-trade clause wherein Dylan Larkin has to give a 10-team trade list, so 10 teams he'd be comfortable being traded to. So 8 times 8.7 is that number, about the range that everyone was really expecting it to come in. Initial thoughts and reactions. I think the first reaction from everybody was relief. Um, 
I mean, what else could it be after this storyline persisting for over a year now? Because everybody saw the end of the contract coming. Um, just wanted on record. We were talking about it before when we months ago made our predictions on this contract. I was $10,000 off what it ended up being because <laughs> I predicted 8.71. Um, but it's good. Um, now, my initial thought was immediately rendered useless like two hours later, but my thought was, this is good. The Red Wings can keep the foot on the gas in terms of the rebuild. They're coming out of it. They're expecting to be good. We've talked at length. You cannot lose Dylan Larkin for nothing. And he had the no move clause. So if he didn't sign, you were losing Dylan Larkin for nothing. That's the reality of it. You can't go out and acquire, you know, everybody they acquired and, you know, take yourself out of the Bedard sweepstakes and expect to be a, a team competing regularly for the playoffs now without Dylan Larkin. So that, that much was clear. They had to keep him. So hence the relief part of the reaction. Now, in terms of what the actual contract is relative to the player, I think it's fair. I don't think one side, quote unquote, won this contract, which generally means it's fair. We've seen how crazy the market is um, for centers in terms of trade value, in terms of contract value. To get a premium top end center is extremely difficult and teams trip over themselves to do it. The Red Wings didn't get him at a steal, but they didn't have to overpay to keep him. Does he have the offensive production of a guy who's going to be making 8.7? Yes or no, I could see the argument on that either way. But because he's such a well-rounded 200-foot player who literally impacts every aspect of the game in a positive way, it makes it very fair to me. Again, we've had talks. Can the Red Wings win a Stanley Cup with Dylan Larkin as their number one center? And the answer is was and probably still is no unless you have two Dylan Larkins. So if Marco Casper turns into a Dylan Larkin, okay. Again, temper expectations. I'm just using Casper as an example here. That could be possible. But all in all, it resolves what was the Red Wings' biggest current problem. It helps keep the direction of the team going in the direction they want it to go. And let's be honest, he's he's the captain. He's the heart and soul of the team. Like, from a hockey fan standpoint, and after the two games they just had, Red Wings needed Red Wings fans needed reason to keep believing. And this is a about as big of a sign as we could have got to keep believing. Yeah, you, you mentioned a couple of things in there, Brad, that I think are really that really stand out for me. One There is no other option here for the Red Wings. Whether you are on either extreme, so buy now, load up, get into the playoffs because you think the Red Wings need it, you miss uh, playoffs in hockey town and you're tired of losing, which is up until the Ottawa games, I think what a lot of people were in that camp. Or if you are, no, the Red Wings are not ready, look how insanely loaded the Atlantic is, you need to reset the rebuild back, you know, multiple years, if not several, um, or if you come down the middle, I don't see a version of the Red Wings that could do without Dylan Larkin. Is he on the ideal timeline if you're setting the rebuild back? No, uh, but he's also not old. Like he still is playing prime years hockey. He's 26, he'll be 27 over the summer. He has a lot of really good top end years left in him. And he is the Detroit's only number one center. Like you said, Brad, that's their only option. Dylan Larkin held all the leverage in this situation other than Eisenman's 
F you home Steve Eisenman, you you get the number you get. Um, and it seems like they came in about it. This is a market deal. You're right. No one fleeced each other. Larkin didn't get what Barzal got. He didn't get much more than Bo Horvat got. Uh, I do feel like he flexes muscles by holding out this long and, uh, uh, you know, getting 8.7. You're right by production. I think it's a little bit higher than if you're trying to boil things down to complete objectivity, but the market is what the market is. Uh, the cap is going up. So whatever, if you consider this an overpay, I think whatever margins those are might be erased by the cap increasing soon enough. And Eisenman didn't, uh, uh, you know, break the bank to lock in a necessary asset who had a lot of leverage over him. I'm not going to sit here and say this is uh, Eisenman's greatest contract and what an absolute steal for Detroit. No, it was a necessary piece of business. Um, Do I think Larkin took a hometown discount? No, I don't think so. But he also didn't really get overpaid in any appreciable way. This is down the middle for me. And reaction? Grateful it's done. Grateful that the Red Wings' future is secured down the middle. They have a lot of work to do, but again, it was necessary, and this is a good thing for Red Wings fans. I think the overall contract in terms of, obviously we knew it would be eight years, and the dollar amount I thought was, you know, Right where I thought both both sides would land. And like you guys mentioned, you can't lose Dylan Larkin for nothing. Um, he has all the skills, all the intangibles that they need from their captain. And I think it helps sort of start to set the foundation for future contracts for guys like Lucas Raymond and um, Mo Sider. Like everybody always says like, oh, when they look at other teams, it's like, oh, well, this guy makes this much. So why would we pay him, pay X, Y, and Z player more? Kinds of kind of starts to toe the line a little bit. So the fact that he that Steve Eisman did not have to overpay for Dylan Larkin, I think, is a is a huge asset there as well. It does also uh, alleviate a lot of concern because had they gone past the trade deadline, and uh, for context here, Larkin did have a no trade clause even on the last year of this contract. So had they gone past the trade deadline without moving him and without a contract in place. And, you know, Eisenman presumably moving towards shipping out multiple pieces on Detroit. Heronix already gone. Larkin's had seen a lot of friends traded away. Uh, Bertuzzi might be the next of them. They're, I'm sure, you know, losing Heronix isn't easy to watch on a team that you're a captain of. Getting this secured now is, it, it just removes that extra little bit of anxiety that might have come with, we're doing all of this and Dylan Larkin's not signed. And what if he watches what Detroit's doing and says... I want to win now and he goes. So that it's it's good that that's not a storyline that has to be explored at all. Yeah, and as we'll get into later, um the Red Wings are going to need a veteran leader for a while. Yeah. And your 27-year-old captain is probably the guy you want to be leading that group. Um so that you know, the intangible stuff Again, we've talked about how overrated or underrated it is in certain certain circumstances, but I think it's it's very necessary for this team and where they're heading, um, especially with today's events. <laughs> um, and also, it's worth noting that Iserman didn't get a contract that is unmovable if things go completely south. Larkin's got the no move for the fir- the no trade clause for the first five years, but the last three years, presumably when Larkin's going to start hitting his decline because he'll be, you know, 32, 33, 34 years old there. Um, he can be traded and there's no signing bonuses. So if it really goes sideways, 
however unlikely, a buyout will be very doable. So it's it's an expensive contract. It's a fair contract, but it's not a contract that is going to be following this team around like a boat anchor if it goes south towards the back the back half of it. The I believe the most comparable contracts as listed by Cap Friendly, and by the way, Cap Friendly, you, they always deserve a lot of recognition, but especially this time of year, thank them uh, and uh, sites like Puckpedia for what they do. Uh, Cap Friendly listed some comparable contracts for Dylan Larkin. So Bo, Bo Horvat obviously just got eight times eight point five from the Islanders. Uh, Tomas Hurdle eight times eight point one two eight, and Mika Zibanejad eight times eight point five. You know, a couple of people pointed out they're like the Zibanejad one. That was a big discount, and Eisman didn't take that. And it's like, yep, yeah, that was what was called out the moment Zibanejad signed that. Um, and that to me, it's it might seem a little pessimistic, but that's where you can draw the comparison and say, yeah, no, there wasn't really a hometown discount here. Like Eisenman, or sorry, Larkin is really going to have to play and earn this contract. That said, he's been playing lights out for what, three, like really his whole time in Detroit, but he had what, a small sophomore slump and has just been better and better. Yep. He's been probably Detroit's MVP this season. The only person who could maybe shake that up a bit is Vili Husso, but Larkin's been consistent all year, especially, uh, yeah, there's no there's no future of the Red Wings as they're built right now without keeping Larkin long term. And and it just it was a deal that whenever we talk to people about it who are in the know, they said it's gonna get done. Larkin wants to be here. He wants to be a Red Wing. It's his hometown team. As much as he brought in, you know, the big hitter in in agency to squeeze every dollar he could out of it, and as much as he waited out and made Red Wings fans nervous for a long time, uh, it was always gonna get done. So Larkin got his payday, biggest payday of his career. Good for him. And Iserman did, was able to keep him, give Larkin that and still not hamper Detroit moving forward. Because let's take a quick look at Detroit's cap structure. They have some big contracts coming up and and depending on what they do with the trade deadline, uh, they might have a variable amount of cap space, but no matter which way you shake it, Sider and Raymond's contracts are coming up. And is he going to go with the strategy of what you set Larkin at is what people, other players are going to be capped at? I don't know, but it certainly gives him the leverage to do that too. Yeah. And flexibility is everything in today's NHL. Look at all the gymnastics. A lot of the contenders are doing right now to clear up cap space in order to get what they need to, you know, make their runs. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, coincidentally, Tampa just moved out just enough cap space for half of Tyler Bertuzzi's contract. Anyways, <laughs> anyways, I, I digress. So that's Larkin. And just as a, uh, this isn't talked about enough, but I think it's important to kind of call out these things, especially as the cap moves at the time of signing Larkin's uh, cap hit is 10.55% of the cap. So that'll adjust the contract kicks in next year. So whatever next year's cap is, will make that fluctuate a little bit. It'll go down. But as of right now, 10.55% of the cap, just if you're drawing some comparisons. That's that's Dylan Larkin. Let's talk about the other big signing, which on its own day, like I said, would have been headline news. Jake Wallman, uh, a banner left defenseman for the Detroit Red Wings, one of the most uh, surprisingly positive turnarounds in terms of a project player acquired in a trade. Uh, was extended for three years at $3.4 million per year uh, by Steve Eisman and the Detroit Red Wings. Jake Wallman is here to stay and enjoy his Texas Roadhouse before games. This is, I'm going to speak for you both here, news that makes all of us happy. Happy that Wallman is staying. 
um, something that's kind of been teased at for a while, but we weren't sure approaching the deadline if Wallman was going to be there, if they thought the left the left side of defense would have been too crowded. Your thoughts and reactions on them locking down Mo Sider's defense partner? Great value. We, When we had a conversation a couple months ago about a Wallman extension, we talked about opportunity for value because there's a, a lot of things that will get you a quote-unquote discount on a player, whether that be injury history, inexperience, et cetera. And we said with Wallman, it was inexperience. We can see as he's playing right now how good he is, but he does not have a long track record of playing like this. So he's not going to get... Like if Jake Wallman had three years of this type of level of play under his belt, what's he getting? Six, seven, eight mil? Oh, his contract would have been doubled. Exactly. So you're taking the risk that 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 this isn't an aberration, that this isn't a flash in the pan, and giving him a moderate term with a half-decent cap hit to kind of hedge your risk. Well, if Jake Wallman continues to play as he is now for the next three years with no improvement, it's a phenomenal deal. You're getting a top-pairing defenseman for under four... 3.4. Yeah, 3.4. So under 4 mil a year. Phenomenal. Absolute phenomenal. Now, given what they did um, today, the term presents some question marks. Uh, I have some we'll, information on that, but yeah. We'll, which we'll get to in in terms uh, when we talk about the Hronic trade. But either way, good value is good value. Short term provides flexibility. If the Red Wings progress the way the Red Wings want to progress... This will be a tremendous value contract that allows the team room to load up for playoff runs. Hopefully plural. If not, it's a fantastic value contract that will be traded for an absolute king's ransom. So there's no lose on this contract, no matter what the trajectory is of the Red Wings over the next three years. And it can be really hard to find a D partner that plays well with your best defenseman. Like we saw with Ben Sherratt and Mo Sider, didn't really work out. Then they bring Wallman into play with Sider, and it's like a total revelation. So locking in a guy like Jake Wallman who can play alongside Moritz Sider, especially at a great contract, is a huge win for the organization. Absolutely. He unlocked him. And uh, that really kind of, affirmed the the kind of things that we were seeing at the start of the season. Like, yes, Ben Schrott's play style didn't lend well to Mo Sider being able to play his kind of game, but Mo Sider also has a lot of growing to do in terms of maturity as a player to be adaptable. And he just didn't have that yet. I think they they were hoping he might be able to do it. And it's not a knock on him. He's still so young, but they thought they gave it enough run before they realized it wasn't working. So yeah, Wallman did do that. So just to give some details on the numbers and the term, First of all, for uh, I know a lot of people wanted longer than three years, and I think you can count Steve Eisman and the Red Wings among them. This is Jake Wallman setting himself up to, um, at age 28 or 29, being able to get himself another contract. Uh, he knows, like right now, 41 games, five goals, five assists for 10 points. He's not putting up first pairing defenseman numbers, especially in the modern NHL. So that is why the number is small. Like Steve Eisenman, you know the way he operates. He just squeezed the hell out of Dylan Larkin. Uh, with Jake Wallman, there was no way he was going to pay him 
maybe what his impacts on the ice would dictate, uh, depending on what model you look at, which are, like, like you said, Brad, some say six, some say nine million. Like he's he's an incredibly impactful player in terms of what happens on the ice when he's on it. But in terms of actual production, 3.4 matches up with what he's put out there. Jake Wallman knows he is emerging still. He knows there's more to his game. So he didn't want to lock himself in any longer than three years. I'm sure that's probably why it took so long uh, that the term was the big part of it. Um, if you're Jake Wallman, you're saying, well, I'm not going to command six or $7 million now. I just don't have the output for it. And I don't have, like you said, Brad, the longevity and the consistency. He was buried behind a very strong St. Louis lineup that won the cup and he was injured. So his coming out party is happening just now for a reason. Uh, so he needs time to build that up. So for him, three years at $3.4 million, yes, it's not the the AAV that he'd maybe want, but it's the term that sets him up to be able to do that. I agree with everything you both said. Like, so important. Like, this is huge for Mo Sider. This is huge for Detroit's blue line. At least for the foreseeable future, at the very worst, you don't have to worry about your top pairing defenseman. Let's say uh, uh, Edvinson comes up or Johansson comes up and they are just lights out and they challenge Jake Wallman for that top pairing spot because they're also good with Sider. It's a good problem to have. Phenomenal problem to have. But the more likely outcome is they come up and they need time to adjust to the NHL. Well, you don't have to worry about it because Wallman Sider is a provably good pairing. It has demonstrated that they can be impactful on the ice. Uh, also, hate to knock on like, like I, I'm not saying this to knock on Sherratt, but for as much as you d- might not like Ben Sherratt's contract, I find more value in like the positive, like this is a great value for Detroit on, on Wallman's contract. It really makes that pill easier to swallow, to know that they have such fantastic value and someone who they're legitimately paying, playing on the top pair for the next three years under three and a half million. That's a steal for Detroit. We're talking about two steals for Detroit this episode, the Hronik trade and the Wallman signing, and, and I think they're both fantastic steals by Steve Eisenman. Whoa, spoilers. Got to quickly refresh Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Unironically, there have been two more trades in the NHL since we have started recording already. <laughs> Are you serious? It's already gone up to two? Uh, Nemesnikov to San Jose, Teddy Bluger to Vegas. Oh, okay. So yeah. like not super impactful trades, although one might be for the Red Wings. That's right. So that that's Jake Wallman. And Brad, the, the one point you made about, you know, potentially trading him uh, down the line, if like, let's say the price is too high in a few years and you don't want him, like that's a tradable contract too. People are also going to be calling about that contract every year. So he has a limited no move where it's a 10 team, no trade list, but that leaves a lot of options open. It is a full flexibility, big impact signing. The only you no know, drawback if you're a Red Wings fan and you only care about the team's cap structure which is I think most Red Wings fans, um, is it's just not for longer. But love that deal for for the Red Wings and Iserman. And honestly, good on Jake Wallman. He's betting on himself. So Yeah, and if Wallman doesn't want to stick around at the end of the three years and the Red Wings are in their contention window, well, as Arizona just proved, you can get elite defensemen cheap in trade. So. <laughs> I still can't believe that. <laughs> Chikrin deal compared to Hironic. Okay, let's let's get into the trade world. And this is where it gets risky. It we gets know- weird. Yeah, it gets We're absolutely about to get weird. This is like Doctor Strange observing like multiverse of madness kind of all over the place. Yeah, it's like, how, how do we go from Sunday night? We're expecting the Red Wings to compete for a playoff spot, which was three days ago. <laughs> we expect a quiet week. Everything goes wrong for the Red Wings for three days. Uh, Philip Ronix of Vancouver Canuck. And they now have like a 3% chance. I think someone tweeted out at Connor Bedard right now. <laughs> so 
let's back up a little bit. How did we get to Philip Hronik being traded? We are not going to spend a lot of time on this because we don't have the time today. We'll revisit in the future. But remember how the Red Wings were firmly in the playoff race, but the other teams around them were, there were a lot of teams in the mix and they were doing really well and the Red Wings needed to keep pace. Well, they had a back-to-back against Ottawa where Ottawa was four points back of them with the same amount of games played. So they had a chance to essentially deliver a killing blow to an Ottawa team that was, you know, they've been through it this year. They've been playing well, but they have been through it. Ottawa won 6-2 and 6-1 respectively. And it's not just the scores. And it's not just that they won back-to-back. Like They could have won 2-1 and 3-2 in regulation those games, and this would be a different story. It's how they won. They completely dominated the Red Wings. Was refereeing bad? If this was a different episode, we would we would talk about some of the most bizarre calls, non-calls, officiating, the the offsetting minors, tra- whatever, all of that. But it's not a different episode, so put that to the side for now. Yes, the refereeing was bad. Listen, take any clip of us talking about the refereeing any episode before this season and just apply <laughs> it here with maybe a slight premium. This one, yeah, this one was special, but. Ottawa came out and dominated Detroit physically. They exposed them defensively. They played a playoff style game that Detroit completely didn't show up for the first night. And the second night was a carbon copy. And that was a, I had big, you know, Eisman was up uh, in the press box. I think it was at Arizona when they, when uh, Arizona trounced Detroit a little while back season. Yeah. I had the exact same vibes with Eisman watching like that. Those were statement games as to can these, can these teams really make a run for the playoffs and do something there. Surprisingly enough, I wouldn't have bet on this. Ottawa said yes, absolutely. And Detroit was, I hate to be dramatic, they were put in their place. Detroit was exposed as this team is not ready. Is the math over for them to make the playoffs? No, it's not. But it's more how they lost that kind of made the statement. And so we were all saying, okay, this probably maybe definitely moves the needle towards uh, trades happening once again because Eisenman, you know, pulled Bertuzzi off the market, but by then the Tanner Janot trade, which we'll tell you about in a little bit, happened. And so the Tyler Bertuzzi talks had started back up and Philip Zadina's name was floating out there. So we were all saying, mm, all that, the, the market running hot, the returns being high, combine that with how Detroit just lost the two most critical games of the season, we might see some pieces unloaded at the deadline. I'm not going to get into the details of the game, but I will bring up my two concerns from those games. Just the the things the Red Wings got exposed on. One, speed. The Red Wings are a very slow team, and Ottawa exposed that dramatically. They were a much faster team, skating and by pace, and it showed, and that is a flaw the Red Wings have to address. Two, and the bigger concern, the Senators exposed the Red Wings mentally. Yeah. They... I, I was planning on sitting here and talking for 35 minutes about the punk test and how badly the Red Wings lost it in these two games. Because, you know, we can isolate Brady Kachuk, but it was really the whole team. You have two ways to approach a team like the Senators. Ignore their bullshit entirely. 100% do not get involved. Or you answer the bell from the first time it's rung. The Red Wings had that big loser mentality of we are not indulging in your garbage. Until we're down by five goals. And then we're going to, you can't do that. It's either from not at all, like, hey, your your crap doesn't phase us at all. Or, okay, we're willing combatants from the first minute of the game. And the Red Wings didn't do either. 
I was really surprised because I felt Derek Lalone has really excelled this year in refocusing the team. I understand losing Michael Rasmussen really shook up not just the, their forward lines, but the identity of those forward lines. Dylan Larkin talked about the role Dylan or Michael Rasmussen played, um, and that was on display. In all, yeah, we could go on for a long time about you know the concerns. Even if Detroit was up by like eight points on Ottawa, and this just made the math harder for them, but they are still you know a playoff favorite of all the wildcard teams, there would still be a lot of real concern coming from those two games. I don't think folks who watched those games and said, no, this team's not ready. I don't think they're being dramatic. I, it's a visceral reaction. Like it's a very emotional reaction, but those two games were big statement games and both teams felt both teams came into those games knowing they were playoff level, you know, importance. Ottawa showed up. Detroit didn't. I just want to make the point because I saw this point a lot on Twitter. Acquiring fighters is not the answer for what happened there. Every time, <laughs> every time these types of games happen, people are like, where's Ryan Reeves? Where's yeah. Jordan Tutu? Like, you need to relax. <laughs> Were there any actual f- real fights in these games? No. Bertuzzi threw some. Yeah, with Zub, but that wasn't the answer. That wasn't what was going to fix it. I'm the just pl- happy he didn't break his hands. Yeah, honestly. When he took that shot in game one, I, I, was, I, I almost, anyways... <laughs> Tyler, get the hell out of the way. Anyways, fights one of this. Guys are going to take runs at Larkins. They're going to take the runs at the Bertuzzi's. They're going to take runs at the Raymonds and the Siders. And these guys have to either defend themselves or ignore it. There is no right or wrong answer to which path is the right one to take. You know, you watch superstars like Patrice Bergeron, who never engages in this crap his whole career. You don't have to engage in it as long as you don't let it affect your game and you don't partake. Or... Okay, if you're going to step up, you have to step up the very first time it's presented and not back down. Ryan Reeves stepping out there uh, is going to do nothing because you think Brady Kachuk's going to go, okay, I'm going to fight your fourth liner who's going to play six minutes tonight. No, of course he's not. He's going to be on the ice with Dylan Larkin, and if if you acquire a fighter who can't play and you put him on the ice with Brady Kachuk, guess what? You're probably getting scored on. So well, The Red Wings did that anyway. I know. Yeah, I know. I just... But... What I what I have to laugh about, think back to Sunday, what our episode was, <laughs> coming off a coming off a big win against Washington, a bigger win against the Rangers, and although it was a loss, running Tampa's show. If you just said, okay, here's what's gonna happen on Sunday. You have two games against Ottawa. Anyways, here's what today what Wednesday's episode is. What would you imagine had to have happened in those two games for for that rapid of uh, a change of course? Like I said, I <laughs> I think I said this maybe two or three episodes. I've never been more confused by the Red Wings than I am right now. This might be me turning around to being less confused. Yeah. Oh, because we're going to get into it. You might end up being the most right with your predictions that we've been making fun of all year. You guys can say whatever you want, give any analysis, any sort of advanced analytics. I just uh, sense the cosmic vibes. and Yeah, Lobsterdamus is plugged in. Why do we even bother? I don't know. Okay, so this all feeds into, like we said, this is a statement in terms of are the Red Wings prepared for the playoffs and the deadline being Friday, March 3rd is a big you know, benchmark. It's a... a, it's a line that you can't go back once you cross it, that Eisenman had to make some decisions before that. Watching those two games, those decisions were obviously made to at least some degree. Today, after the Woman news, after the Larkin news, which the Larkin news dropped today, 
it was announced that Philip Hronick, who is having a career year in Detroit, was traded to the Vancouver Canucks alongside a 2023 fourth-round pick from Detroit um, in exchange for the New York Islanders' first-round pick in 2023, which came in the Horvat trade. That's top 12 protected. It slides to 2024 unprotected uh, that first round in case it does have to slide. And a 2023 second-round pick, which belongs to Vancouver. Some thoughts on this initially. Detroit has tried to sell Philip Peronik in the past. He has one year left on a you know really good contract. It's $4.4 million for one year after this one. He is an RFA upon expiry, so he's a very valuable player to have. Uh, but before this season, he wasn't... He's not been playing like this forever. Yes, he was still about a half point per game right shot defenseman. So as much as Red Wings fans, including us, you know, watch him every game and needle and zero in on the defensive woes, he was still a very valuable player at his lowest. But uh, Detroit has shopped him in the past. Right? Last season, I, it was Pittsburgh that they were in conversations with where um, Pittsburgh was really in on Hronik and or Bertuzzi, but they only wanted to make hockey trades. Eisman only wanted draft assets at that point. Nothing happened. This year... Someone's offering a first round pick that is either top 12 protected this year, which I mean, pick 13 in this draft is a phenomenal pick. It's such a strong first round or 2024 first could be Celebrini and that belongs to the Islanders. Remember plus a second and all you, and you gave up Hronik in a fourth. That's a big return for Eisman. We'll talk about what it means for the rebuild in general in a little bit, but this trade return specifically in my mind, that's a haul for Eiserman. I don't really understand it from Vancouver's perspective. This is a steal for me. From a value perspective, which is what we're talking about at this moment, yeah, this is an incredible haul uh, for the Red Wings. A year ago, if you had told me the Red Wings got a first-round pick for Philip Ronick, I would have been surprised, not shocked, but surprised, but I would have assumed it would have been like Boston's first-round pick, pick 29 pick 30, pick 31. You know what I mean? Not a middle to top 10 first round pick. With a second round pick, that's kind of a first round pick in hiding. Yeah, which is very, which is an actual closer pick to a late first round pick than the first round pick the Red Wings did get. Yes. Because right now Vancouver's pick is going to be somewhere between, let's say conservatively, pick 35 and 40. In a deep draft, that's close to a late first. Because... Again, I know I've said we've talked about this before, but we've talked about this before. There is a massive difference in value from a mid-first-round pick to a late-first-round pick. The gap between pick, let's say, 15, which is, I think, where the Islanders are sitting right now, and pick 30 is gigantic. So it cannot be understated that not only did the Red Wings get a first and a second-round pick for Philip Ronick, They got a mid first and an early second. That is tremendous value. Again, Philip Hronick this year especially is a phenomenal defenseman. What this tells me is the Red Wings think this might be the aberration. And what we've seen the last three or four years is is what Philip Hronick actually is. Which if he reverts back to that, oh my God, Vancouver, what are you doing? But if he even if he holds up what he's doing this year... It's still really good value. Yep. Which leads to the bigger conversation, which is kind of the the black cloud hanging over this trade, unfortunately. What does this mean for the timeline of well, what the Red Wings are planning? 
I want to get to that in a second. First of all, Evan, your your reaction to the trade. It's I know we've talked about Heronic being traded in previous trade deadline preview episodes from years past, but this was not the year I thought it was going to happen. And when it kind of came out of left field, I was, you know, sad the Red Wings are getting rid of Heronic because I think, you know, he's been on the team obviously since he was drafted and like he's been a, a stable, mostly stable half a point per game producing defenseman. Like he's been a, a strong member of this team. But when I saw the return, I was like, Philip, I love you. I yeah. love you in more ways than one. <laughs> but it's hard to say say bye to those handlebars, but that's one way to peel them away. There's no sheriff in town anymore, so it's up to everybody else to step up. Um, but man, what happens with this um, with the Islanders' first round pick this year is extremely interesting. I will say, I, I had the same reaction. Of course, I, like I said, I was surprised. But once you thought about it, like the the surprise was that it happened, but it did it did add up. I generally agree. I think this was. This was the kind of value where it doesn't matter whether or not you think Hronik is sustainable at this level or if you think it's a flash in the pan or somewhere between because that's uh, that's probably the most likely outcome. Uh, this value is good to great no matter what. The worst case is that this is really good value in my mind. Yeah. So for me, knowing that Hronik has been shopped in the past at least once, multiple occasions based on my understanding, seeing this kind of price, I bet, and this is just a... a an inference. This is just a guess. It's not working off any information here, but I bet Eisman saw that price, saw that he can get it, probably coupled it with, you know, the context of this team isn't going to do anything this year in terms of the playoffs, coupled it with as much as it's not really the most fair to say, because post Reeves hit, and then more importantly, being paired with Sherratt, Hronik's not really been that great in 2023 compared to the start of the year. He said, I can't pass up this price. We say it all the time that every player has got their price and I absolutely believe that when Steve Eiserman saw this, he's like, yep. how could I say no? Brad, what did you say to me coming in my front door before your shoes were even off? What does a good GM do? Call the bad GMs a lot. What what Vancouver is doing is a mystery. The world's great. Sherlock Holmes and all the world's greatest detectives could get involved. They'll never solve it. I, I appreciate them so much as a hockey fan. Remove the Red Wings context from this. I appreciate them so much as a hockey fan because they keep the headlines hot. I don't I don't get this from Vancouver's perspective. Hronik's a good player. He's going to make their blue line better. But that that first round pick, either 2023 or 2024, is extremely valuable. If that pick is in 2023, if it's pick 15 in 2023, that like we haven't talked about it because the Red Wings have kind of changed uh, everyone's plans at this point in the year. But this is a really, really, really strong first round. You could get a centerman at pick 15. Maybe not the top end ones, but you could walk away with one. It's it's so valuable. In 2014, with the with the way the Islanders are, are projected, who knows? They could be a lottery team. That could be Celebrini next year. I, I You're right, Evan. There aren't enough uh, uh, detectives is, in the world to, to yeah, unravel that one. The, this pick, to me, watching the Islanders now is going to be on the radar, which I don't think those words have ever <laughs> left my mouth. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> that Red Wings Islanders game, if that was being played now as opposed to the other day, there'd be a lot more people tuning in. Yeah. So Red Wings fans, you really, really got to root for the Islanders to lose. But not now. not just a little bit. Yeah. Not too much. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> You're right, Brad. It is now time to talk bigger picture because this is 
honestly, there could have been a much smaller deal and, and the same kind of signal would have been sent that, you know, the Red Wings are selling, or at least to some degree, they're changing things a lot. Even if you are the most anti, you know, selling position in terms of what to do, what Steve Eisman should do this trade deadline, no matter what, things are going to change presumably quite a bit here. Hironic creates more questions as to what's going to happen on defense. There was a hot second there where we thought, is this Jacob Chikrin? Well, Jacob Chikrin, Chikrin, who is a left defenseman but can play the right side, uh, was traded to Ottawa, funny enough, so talk about some hockey poetry there, for a 2023 conditional first, which is top five protected from Ottawa, and a 2024 uh, second-round pick from Washington that's conditional that makes that goes into a first-round pick uh, that's top 10 protected in 2024. And that only happens if Ottawa makes this year's Eastern Conference Finals. Likely. which So it's a first and two seconds. Yeah. And then another uh, a 2026 second round pick. You compare that, that is on balance just one additional second round pick than Detroit got for Philip Ronick. To me, that's an un- for how long Jacob Chikrin has been out and what they've been asking for and how much better. I'm sorry, he's a, he's a better player than Hronik. That's a way more valuable asset and Hronik's very valuable. Eisman knocked it out of the park and Arizona flubbed this one in my mind. Uh, Ottawa got a steal. I'm almost mad Detroit didn't do it. I am mad Detroit didn't do it. I, I'm assuming, you know, Ottawa or Arizona might have not given certain teams last trade of refusal or something like that. I don't know. I'm sure 30 one. other teams are mad that it didn't happen. Yeah. L- legit, every team that didn't make that trade screwed up. Yeah. But either way, we made that trade. Just we gave up Hronik. Yeah. We, we did it in reverse. Detroit is, uh, yeah, they... It's hard to be mad when they when they got nearly an identity. Not that a second round pick is a small difference, but I think uh, I think Chikrin is more than a second round pick more valuable of an asset than Hronik. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So it wasn't Chikrin, um, and so there's still a lot of we're going to get into what might be happening next for Detroit. But what does this mean for this trade deadline? What does this mean for the rebuild? What does this mean for the future? Broad strokes. Well, before everything I say gets disqualified, but whatever the hell Steve Eisman does in the next 12 hours, I think this is the signal that this is the core of this team is definitively the Mo Sider Lucas Raymond age bracket. Larkin, you keep around, and I alluded to this talking about it. You need veteran leadership. Your whole team can't be 23, 24, 25 years old when you're in your window. I think what Eiserman is seeing is kind of twofold. He sees the strength of the Atlantic division right now. He understands that in the next three years, the Red Wings aren't going to be among the big dogs in this division. Even if they are squeaking into some wildcard playoff spots, they are not competing for cups in this window. That's diplomatic for the, the Atlantic in the East is a Thunderdome. What the hell is happening? Yes. Montreal is the only bad team in this division. Truly. Um, And I think what he's looking for, and this is probably the right course of action. I know I'm guilty of talking about players, windows, Bertuzzi, Larkin, Hronik, and then really isolating it. You know, if the Red Wings are going to compete for cups in quote unquote Hronik's window, how big could that window be? If they're not competing for another three, four years, Hronik's, that's Hronik's 28, 29, 30 years. That's a small window, relatively speaking. What I think Eiserman's vision probably is and should be is the Washington, the Pittsburgh, the Chicago. The Our window is 
five, six, seven, eight years long because it's we built it around our young core. And then we added pieces around that young core as they came and progressed through their early to mid-20s and then started creeping up on 30. You can do that with Cider, Raymond, Edmondson, Casper, Kosa. That's the core. Now, obviously, it's a big if because you need these guys to hit. We know Cider, Raymond, pretty safe bets at this point, I would say. Yeah. Edvinson progressing well. Costa's been on a heater lately. Casper's having a phenomenal SHL season. So it's a calculated bet that this is the group that's going to take you to where you want to be. The Red Wings now have, from the looks, again, understanding the condition on the Islanders pick, but right now, five picks in the top 43 picks of this draft. Five. If they decide to hold these picks and not flip them for hypothetically, now that Chickering's off the market, like a Nick Schmaltz, you are going to hit on a few of those. That's just the odds. You're getting two to three really good players out of that group in all likelihood that now join that rough age bracket of Casper Cosa, Edmondson, Sider, Raymond. Yeah. Does this mean more patience is required? Unfortunately, yes. Does it mean the Red Wings are going to be bad this next year? No, I think they'll probably be very similar to this year. But Hronik was having a huge year and not having Hronik there for the rest of this season and next year, it can't be understated. Your team's not better. And that is before we know what happens with Tyler Bertuzzi, Sunfist, Zadina, Verana. This team's not going to be better for the rest of this season and depending what they do in the offseason... They, they might not be better than what they were this season next year, unfortunately. I want to like recognize here, we've been all aboard what the Red Wings have been doing leading up to the wildcard race with full acknowledgement of the fact that the East and the Atlantic specifically was becoming a Thunderdome, the Metro 2, knowing that it was going to lead to probably not a lot in the playoffs, but we were espousing the, the, the virtues of just getting into the playoffs. And I stand by all of that. If you're thinking, how does two games change things? I mean, they couldn't have been two worse games to lose in terms of who you're losing to in the standings and the the nature, the statements that were made and how they lost changed things a lot. And it's worth noting the teams around them won. Won. While all that was happening. Yeah. So you have to take the, like, like Evan says, you have to just kind of ride the waves as they come as usual. Evan's right. Uh, but I still stand by all of that. But I don't see how you can walk away from the Ottawa games and seeing how the rest of the East is loading up and not at least agree with what I think is the two paths that Eisman is taking here. And both are resets. One is a heavy reset. You sell, 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 knowing that it's going to be a while yet because you have to wait out. The the thing I mentioned last episode is, yes, these teams are loading up. But they're not going to be able to keep these guys forever. They're going to have to pay up eventually. And that's when they these guys leave in free agency. They get traded to make cap space, et cetera. <clears throat> this is why the cap is a good thing in my mind. Anyhow, or the other option is a lighter reset. Think about what St. Louis has in front of them, where they are going to try to restructure around uh, uh, Thomas and Cairo and use their first round picks to, to, to do it quickly. I used to think the turnaround, the quick turnaround wasn't a thing. You do need a lot of luck. You need a lot of fantastic scouting. You need a lot of good outcomes in the draft lottery to go your way. Uh, but it's possible. Those are the two options in my mind, and I don't see how you can walk away from Monday and Tuesday's games and not think that those are the 
really only two reasonable options for Steve Eisenman. It would be unreasonable to not at least explore uh, or, or push towards trading and maximizing to not try to compete with the absolute gladiators in the East right now. And it's probably worth mentioning that of those two options, it's probably reasonable to say Eisenman's not locked in on either one of them right now. Everything's fluid. You get flexibility to be flexible. You have what Eisenman's going to have here after this draft, assuming he doesn't trade any draft picks, which is possible, but assuming he doesn't trade any of these five picks this year, is he's going to have five more very high-quality prospects in the hopper. There's not enough roster spots in the Red Wings for all of them. That's just the reality. Like You look at the Red Wings... According to Scott Wheeler, the third best prospect pool in the entire NHL, and now you're adding five top 45 picks to it. You're getting quality players. Now, further to your point of the two paths, you go slower, you let these guys develop, and all of a sudden all your best prospects just make up your core for the foreseeable future, and you run with that. Or if the Red Wings progress in the next year or two, you know, Casper and Edvinson come in next year and they hit, and they look good, and the Red Wings are winning games, Kubelik's still producing, Perron's still producing, Larkin's Larkin, Raymond's Raymond, Sider's Sider. You have the world of picks and prospects to trade for a Nick Schmaltz, for a whoever is the top defenseman on the market that year. You have the ability to hit the gas the second you want to hit the gas. And if those opportunities don't present themselves, well, okay, now you've got this fantastic group of you know, late teen, early 20 players who you can ride for the next 10 years if you want to. And, you know, I, I jokingly said this uh, before we started recording and, and alluded to it while we're recording about how I'm mad the Red Wings didn't make the Chikrin trade. It's funny to think, if you just look at it plainly, a first and two seconds, the Red Wings could have given up that in just this year's draft and still had a first and second round pick. So if we're talking about flexibility, future, to be able to hit the gas when they want to hit the gas, they're always going to have that option because they already have those assets. You know, this isn't even talking about Berggren, Soderblom, Hannes, pick, you know, Buchelnikov, the million prospects they have that not only have value to the future of this Red Wings, they have value as trade assets if, if and when the Red Wings get to that point. Look at what Ottawa's done. Like, you know, Critique auto all you want. They went and acquired the best forward on the market last year in Alex Dabrinkit. They went and acquired the best defenseman on the market this year in Jacob Chikrin. They still have a loaded prospect tool, a young, talented team, and yeah, not many picks left over, but they were able to do it because they stockpiled all of this. And they decided now was the time to really, truly hit the gas. Again, you can debate whether or not they should have. I don't care. They're the senders. Who cares? But the Red Wings now have that option in front of them because, oh my God, are they not loaded right now for picks and prospects? You're right. It's all wide open. I think if you ask Steve Eisman right now and he would give you the time of day, um, you know, what's your plan? He'd say, get good players, make this team better. And I, it would be an honest answer from Steve Eisman. I know you can't take his, his word, you know, literally you have to understand that he's not always going to reveal that. He himself says, don't take anything I say seriously. But yeah, you're right, Brad. The only path forward here is to be flexible and take make the best deals and make the best moves that come up to you and leave your options open. The Wallman signing leaves your options open. 
the uh, Hronic trade creates way more avenues and options than you would have had by by keeping Heronic in terms of when are you going to be competitive and when can you and what can else can you bring into retool for further down the line the re- these next you know this next day and a half i don't i don't think eisenman has a specific vision in mind as to what's going to happen so let's talk about what we think is going to happen based on what we know and what's out there First of all, before the Ottawa game, before the Larkin signing, be, before the Heronic trade, before the the Wallman signing, even uh, I believe, yeah, it was before the Wallman signing. Tanner Janot was traded from Nashville to Tampa Bay, and you might be thinking, what does that have to do with the Detroit Red Wings? Tanner Janot, yeah, is a little bit of the I'll punch you in the face and score in the playoffs type player that Tyler Bertuzzi is, but Tyler Bertuzzi is better than Tanner Janot. So why does that matter? Here's what was given up for Tanner Janot by the Tampa Bay Lightning. Calfoot, which is, you know, that it's not really a young player that's going to go anywhere, I think, in an appreciable way. But a 2025 first-round pick that's top 10 protected, a 2024 second-round pick, a 2023 third-round pick, a 2023 fourth-round pick, and a 2023 fifth-round pick. What is this, the CHL? This is like an NHL GM mode, create a team. This is what you do when you want to stay at the top of the league forever in your, your be a pro mode or your GM mode or whatever it is. A first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and a prospect for Tanner Janot. Tanner Janot, I like Tanner Janot. I think he's a good player. I think he's better than his results dictate this year, but uh, his stat line this year is five goals, nine assists in 56 games. He is a forward. He has produced less than Jake Wallman on defense, who hasn't produced a lot. A first, second, third, fourth, and fifth for him? He's Not, at $800,000 yeah. So that cap hit for Tampa Bay who is going for it every single year, which is what you have to be doing when you have an elite core like they do. I have no problem with them targeting him and valuing, valuing him highly. But if that's the market rate for Tanner Janot, what can you get for Tyler Bertuzzi? It wasn't long after the, the uh, whispers um, of Bertuzzi we were hearing those again teams really heated it back up and it's our understanding that yeah Iserman and this isn't exclu- exclusive to Iserman any GM who has anything to sell across the league saw that their ears perked up and all of a sudden are listening think back to what we said when Bertuzzi first came on the, off the market quote unquote we said it accomplishes a couple of things first of all it's a good message to the room it says we're going for it second of all you're not committed to anything trade deadlines Friday March 3rd you can listen to offers and just not do anything up until then. It creates demand. It drives up the price. You wait for maybe better players to come off the market, so your player is a little bit more of a, a a golden egg kind of thing. That that the timing of that statement is like a mastercraft in oh, it's being yeah. a general manager in pro sports. And I don't think that was a thing. Actually, I I, I can say for sure, like that wasn't a thing where it's like yeah, Eisenman. Uh, fed that to people and put it out there. I think he told other GMs in a way because he knew it would get out. Um, and I, I genuinely believe he had both avenues open. Like if the Red Wings won all of their games and we weren't having this conversation, then he would have been off the market. But yeah, Tyler Bertuzzi, I am back into expecting him to be dealt if if this price can be had. The only way I can see him not being dealt is if the Red Wings sign him, which I still think is an option. Uh, but you know, let's say first, second, third, fourth, fourth, and fifth, you're doing that. So Tanner Janot's cost controlled this year at a very low price, and then team control remains at the end of the season because he's a restricted free agent. So, and we've seen Tampa do this in previous years with Brandon Hagel, Barkley Grudeau. They value additional years 
and, and team control beyond just a rental, which Bertuzzi is at this point a pure rental. So it's probably worth keeping that in the back of your mind. But yes, Tyler Bertuzzi is a far superior player to Tanner Shino. And we've seen tons of first round picks flying around this trade deadline so far. Teams are not afraid to move them. And I think teams are in their window are understanding that, yes, the first round picks are valuable, but if we want to make a run this year, that prospect's not helping us for two, three years, especially late first round picks. Teams are starting to realize the actual value of those and relative to their window and and they're moving them more freely. So there's opportunity there. Um, You know, you look at teams now that, you know, Kane, Tarasenko, Niederreiter, uh, Jeannot, keep going, the 97 other forwards who have been traded at this deadline, there's still a handful of teams out there who have not made a move that are definitely, Dallas has not made a significant move. Carolina has not made a significant move at forward. Calgary has not made a move yet. They're the only team in the NHL that hasn't made a trade yet. Um, Edmonton might not be done. Tampa just cleared up cap space. Although I don't know what the hell Tampa would have left to give up for Bertuzzi. But the teams that want to make a big splash at forward, they're down to Bertuzzi, JVR, maybe Nick Schmaltz if, if Arizona's willing to give him up, even though he's got term. The market's thinning out. Teams don't want to be left uh, on the outside looking in, and that could drive up Bertuzzi's value even for a rental. Maybe Dallas, if they want to get in, the the cost might be Stankovin now, which a week ago I would have said was insane. I have to say too, like like you said, Evan, like a master stroke in timing. Not even just when it was announced, like right now, things could not have gone better for Detroit. In you know, Brad, your your whole mantra for this episode is flexibility and options. We're recording. It's past eight PM right now on Wednesday night. Between now and Friday, March third, at the trade deadline at three PM Eastern, that is a whole universe of moves away. Uh, away. So that is, you know, that's quite a bit of time to make a move to drive up price. A lot of phone calls. Like that is a price can get driven up in mere hours, let alone a day and a half. Secondly. Another thing that has gone to to Iserman and Detroit's advantage here is this is the most insane trade deadline I've ever seen in in terms of the buildup. It started and it has not stopped in terms of the volume of trades and the massive impact of trades. I've not seen this many significant pieces move around ever really in the modern NHL. What does that mean? It means a lot of big names have come off the board. So folks have been making their moves early. So those who are going to be desperate and have assets to give up, they have a day and a half to just sit there and rack their brains and see if they want to meet Eiserman's price. Again, I don't want to remove the option from the table of keeping Bertuzzi. Uh, I, I know it might not make a lot of sense. I don't think it's necessarily the path forward. If you consider, you know, what we were talking about earlier with like the two kinds of resets, a heavy reset and a lighter one. I still think dealing Bertuzzi for a really good return is the way to do it. On the off chance the return's not there, there's still a chance they sign, but I would not be surprised if Iserman's options here are a really strong return for Bertuzzi or an insane return for Bertuzzi just by holding out. Things are playing in his hand, in, in Detroit's hand, to make the most of a Tyler Bertuzzi situation, which two months ago I was sitting on this podcast whining. Seems like it dissolved. And we're only talking about Bertuzzi. We have not yet talked about Zadina, Verana, Sunquist, other players who are probably also going to get calls and maybe be dealt. Yeah, and let's not forget, too, the Red Wings have experience with a similar situation where um, the Tomas Tatar trade came down to the last minutes of the trade deadline, and then Vegas massively overpaid for him because 
otherwise they were they were left on the outside looking in. And that scenario could play out the exact same way here with Bertuzzi. Your thoughts on, I, I know the, what the answer is going to be, but your thoughts on the most likely outcome and whether or not they uh, should trade Bertuzzi as opposed to trying to sign and then. I think the Red Wings, like you guys alluded to, they're in a great position now because the supply is low and the demand is still high. The West is wide open. And a team like Dallas would be crazy not to keep adding and really go for it because they know that the the East is going to beat itself up by the time they get to the Stanley Cup Finals. So for the Red Wings, at, at the end of the day, they have the ultimate flexibility in this scenario. Like you said, hold out for the highest bid. And I, I do believe there's going to be teams that get nervous and will make an overbid. Whether that's for Bertuzzi or someone else, I don't know. Or they can just hold on to him and say, you know what? We'll go back to the bargaining table, see if we can't get a contract to work out. Like The biggest thing in the Red Wings world right now is flexibility, and they've got it in spades in every single aspect in terms of asset management. The, the only thing I will say to that, though, is I don't see how you keep Bertuzzi now after trading Hironic. That, that's, yeah, yeah, I know. You know what I mean? Like it, it's you're resetting the timeline. And again, I still agree with Ryan's point of there's two paths here, but both those paths lead younger. When I think, when I and again, the, the talking about it and entertaining the possibilities to say it's not impossible. This could still happen. Um, but when I think about potentially signing Bertuzzi, I don't think. It could be long term if the money's low enough. That really, I don't really understand why Bertuzzi would do that. So when I when I think about a potential Bertuzzi signing, I'm like, okay, short term, uh, kind of like a souped up version of what Wallman's doing, and it's a very tradable contract. But with the market the way it is now, why you, would you risk I, kicking that can down the now road? Is the time. I agree. That's why personally I land on. Not only is it the most likely, it makes the most sense to deal him. And frankly, first of all, you know, home run for Steve Eisman to be able to flip. Uh, someone unexpected into major assets when you recognize, okay, I am not competing in this East. This team cannot do like as good as it feels like this is insane. So you, you turn one player into major, major assets, the best move possible here, the absolute best move possible here in terms of the actual value of the player and what you can get in this market is trading Tyler Bertuzzi sucks. He's a fan favorite. We love Tyler Bertuzzi, but the, the, the time is right. He somehow escaped injury at the trade deadline this time. Somehow, all of the, most of the players ahead of him uh, uh, on the market have been traded. The prices have all been set high. This is a confluence of all of the events to trade Tyler Bertuzzi for a haul. So inevitably, it's going to happen the moment we hit publish, and we know that. But yeah, I, I I see this trending in that way where undoubtedly, like that's that's what the the primary focus of what any of Eisenman's texts or phone calls are like right now. In terms of likely destinations, I, I liked your points, Brad, in terms of teams who have to make a move, Carolina, Dallas, Calgary. Um, you know, I talked earlier, Pittsburgh really wanted Hronik last year. They were also really, really pushing for Bertuzzi. Same thing. They wanted to make a hockey trade. That doesn't make sense. You don't deal Tyler Bertuzzi for other players. You get him for high picks. Um, if they they have some first-round picks to play with, if they really want to capitalize on their their big three over there, Crosby, Latang, and Malkin, and, and bring in Bertuzzi, Maybe you can get a first-round pick off of them. There's a big market, relatively speaking, for who could use, I mean, every NHL team could use a Bertuzzi, who could use and who could give up enough for Tyler Bertuzzi. 
I don't think Edmonton's done yet either. I didn't think so either. I, I really like the move they made for Ekholm. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't think they're done. And they have contracts they can move out in order to free up cap space for Bertuzzi. Again, not saying that's the definitive destination, but I, I think we have to include them uh, in that scenario. So in terms of a return, before we talk about the other players, ballpark, same as Hronik, a little less, a little more. It's hard uh, to predict because different positions, different values, different team control circumstances. Overall, I think Bertuzzi's the better player, but Hronik was having a better season. Bertuzzi's rental versus Hronik's team control. I'm going to say the return for Bertuzzi won't be as good as Hronik's, but I think it'll be it'll be the same in the margins. Could I see a first and a second round pick for Bertuzzi? Yeah, absolutely. But it won't be the Islanders first and the Canucks second. Y- you know what I mean? Yeah. It'll be a late 20s first and a mid to late second round pick or a, a team like Edmonton who might have to get creative with contracts and they moved a first round pick already so it might be more prospect themed. You know, I don't know, Yamamoto and Broberg or something along those lines because they're moving out a contract. Detroit's taking a contract back. Edmonton doesn't have another first that they want to give up. You know, I don't know where Broberg... Broberg might not be the right prospect, but just something along those lines. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? It, it could be something creative like that. Again, we keep looking at Dallas. Might be Stankovin straight up. Do you value that at more or less than what they got for Hronik? I'd say it's close, but less. So teams are going to have to get creative. A, because uh, most of the teams that are going to be inquiring about Bertuzzi are capped out which means if the Red Wings have to take back a contract that actually usually adds value to the trade, like, hey, yeah, we will take this bad contract off your hands as well, but we're getting that prospect we really like. So I think he's, I think it's going to be a substantial return, but I think a lot of creativity is going to be required. Other players in the market, uh, Philip Zadina's name pops up once again. That is not a new occurrence. It kind of happens all, uh, it's happened at least once, if not twice in the past I know last year, um, you know, trying to find a new home to sell Philip Zadina as a, not just a reclamation project, but someone who is already trending upwards. Much like Philip Hronik this year, I think this would be the best time if you are going to deal Philip Zadina to do that. He's he's played well since coming back from injury. That said, it's in a much more muted way. It's not going to be a, you're not talking first round picks in exchange for Zadina, but um, it's not a new sentiment, the team wanting to move on from Zadina and seeing what they could flip him. I could see that turning into a trade of um, project for project. That Zena just screams Carolina, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they they not only do they love their their cheap players with team control, they love their reclamation projects, and they're just going to build the 2018 draft at this point. Honestly, it's kind of funny. You can uh, you can always project which player is like, yeah, they need a new uh, scenery and. Man, Raleigh is really great around this time of year. <laughs> it always ends up being Carolina. Uh, any player who who Ken Holland has familiarity with, you can usually, like, you're right, I think he's very familiar with Bertuzzi and is interested. I wouldn't be surprised if he's wondering about Zadina too. Uh, that one to me is, is, I could go either way on whether or not the team should deal him. Um, I would like to see him get some run based on how he's been playing, but at the same time, you can't, with all the forwards coming up, and think back to what Brad said earlier this episode of uh, the Red Wings have so many prospects who are going to need roster spots if they make it. You got to make room eventually. 
with uh, other players who are on the board. So Verona, whether again, whether folks you know want to accept it or not, his name is very much out there. He's a really difficult one to pin down in terms of value. I think he's as likely, if not more likely, to be moved than uh, Bertuzzi. I wouldn't say more likely. No, you're right. That was silly. As likely to be moved. He's in the same tier as Bertuzzi. Let's call it that. The the Red Wings are motivated to make the trade. So I don't know necessarily that they're so concerned about um, uh, clearing up his the cap space for next year now that Heronix is off the book. But if they make other moves... And, you know, someone, I think Frank Saravalli mentioned Pareko today, like wonders about that, or let's say they want to go for someone with a big contract, then they still be, will be cognizant of cap space. But uh, the organizational focus is to not have to pay Jacob Verona his $5.25 million next year. So to me, that's a harder value to pin down in terms of what they can get in return. Detroit might have to add. It might just be a low value, but he's another name that's that's out there. Yeah, it frees up a roster spot. It gives him a fresh start. I, I I'd be shocked if they trade him and... If if they get a return, it's anything more than a mid-round pick. I mean, he was on waivers. Now, if Detroit's willing to retain half, that's a different conversation because there are teams who would be interested in, you know, the taking the approach of, but we can fix them. Yeah. And and teams love doing that. I just mentioned Carolina. Like if they're interested in Zadina, which wouldn't surprise me, they'd probably be at the uh at the door for Verona too. Um so you know, and they're also the team that signed Tony D'Angelo, so they they can they can work with off ice issues. Yep. So it, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I just I don't think Veron is a impact trade. I think that's a we need to be done with this storyline type of trade. And I honestly think if you're talking about you know you've dealt Philip Heronic, you could end it there. But the whole list is if you've dealt Philip Heronic, Bertuzzi's name is out there, Zadina and Verona. There aren't many players off the board here. I would not be surprised if teams wanting to make a depth move ask about Sunquist. I would not be surprised if teams wanting to make a depth move asked about ask about guys like Suter or Kubalik. Uh, I could see a world maybe where uh, if you want to get completely crazy, someone says like, I want to give you a late round pick for Osterley just because I need a body at defense or uh, what's Ned doing right now? Will you retain on Ned? We just need insurance at goaltending. Uh, at goalie, whatever it might be. I think everyone's on the board. And you know what? As as weird as it is to say, I also think that includes, you know, the free agents who came in barring Sherratt and Cop. Uh, I, I think folks will call about Perron. Uh, everything is on the table here for Detroit. I, I think Eisenman would be motivated to move Sherratt at this point. <laughs> Nobody's touching that contract. Uh, you say that, but he was traded for a first and he was signed with some competition for his, his right. So I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't think this is the year if you're going to move on from that contract where it's most likely to happen. Any of those names that come to mind where you're like, yeah, I, I absolutely see this guy moving. I think Sunquist will have a lot of calls. Just he teams love that type as a bottom six forward. And he was one of those bottom six forwards on a cup winner. So he's yep. proven he can play that role for exactly what the teams are hoping to get out of it. He's kind of like a Nemesnikov in that respect. Like Nemesnikov was always playing like a player where you're like, yeah, it's a guy who's going to get dealt at the deadline. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that Sunquist is absolutely going to get dealt at the deadline, but you know, he makes 2.75 if Detroit retains on that. Strikes me like that, like a bottom six Tampa guy. Oh yeah. Who would just pop off in the playoffs. The D- Detroit doesn't have any retention on their books right now, do they? Detroit has Richard Ponick for the rest of this year. So they can do two, two more, more for the rest of this year. 
Um, and then they Ponic for sure comes off the books next year. So they have they could they have all three slots available for next year as well. Yeah. yeah. So you can retain uh, salary on three contracts at a time. Yeah. So they've got if they wanted to retain on let's say Bertuzzi and Sunquist, they could do that. And if they wanted to retain on a Peron, Kubalik, Verana, they have the slots next year to do it as well. So we talked about you know, the names that are out there based on what's reasonable and also what we've heard and what's been reported elsewhere. Uh, I think we all agree Bertuzzi, most likely with Verona to be dealt, but in terms of big trade, Bertuzzi is the one to keep your eyes on. Uh, Really, everyone's on the table. I think we all kind of understand that now. We talked about the options, what might happen, what Eisenman's paths forward are here. And the fact that it's fluid and it can go in any direction is, yeah, that's a fact. But what would you do here? Based on the market right now, based on how the other teams in the East are loading up, based on all of that, what is your path forward if you're Steve Eisenman? Which kind of fork in the road do you choose? Everybody's got a price. You're saying sell, sell, sell? Sell, sell, sell. You you don't you don't trade Philip Peronic because you're you're invested in making a run this year at this point. That sends a huge message to the room. They know they're out of it this year. And, and you know, they could still rattle off a bunch of wins. I'm not sitting here and saying, oh, you know, that's what they're going to do, right? Like, yeah. They're absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. No, I'm not saying that the team's uh, dead in the water, but management is. The, you do not trade Philip Peronic with the playoff run being at the forefront of your priorities. And you can't, it would be a disservice to the organization to half-ass it either way. You either maximize value on your pending UFAs or you make a run at the playoffs. You traded Philip Peronic. The signal is in the air. So I'm not saying you sell everything for whatever price, because again, there's there's value to guys um, and there's value to not setting the bar too low for your guys. You're listening on Bertuzzi. Uh, you're you're probably actively shopping Bertuzzi. You're actively shopping Verana. You're listening on Sunquist. You're listening on Suter. You're listening on... You know, I'd be less inclined to move the guys for next year that are under contract for next year as well because you need bodies and you don't want to take too big of a step backwards if a step backwards at all. But it would be a disservice to not listen. Does anyone, I'll, I'll give my answer in a second here, but does anyone call about Robbie Fabry with three, two years after this one at 4 million? Is that too much term for, for folks to consider his knee injury history? Would that scare them away? I wonder because he's been productive. It depends on the team. I think that comes down to any given team's pro scouts. Again, you look at a team like Carolina who loves, who hates rentals and loves acquiring guys with term. Sure. I, I use Carolina as the example a lot, but they're not the only team that, that is like that. Um, I, again, everybody's going to listen, but you need bodies for next year. So I, I wouldn't be pressed to shop players like that around. I would not. I I would listen because as we found out with Heronic. Everybody's got a price, and if someone meets that price, you you do it. But there is a limit to how many guys you can do that on before you just set this team right into another full-fledged rebuild. Yeah, my my path that I choose here to, to answer the question is you absolutely deal Bertuzzi because I don't see... You can't go past the deadline without a Bertuzzi contract. And I'm, this, this opinion is nullified if one comes up in the next 36 hours or whatever. I don't foresee that happening so i think you absolutely deal bertuzzi i think you deal verona as long as you're not giving up retain salary whatever yeah don't give up assets really to do it or anything appreciable 
And then from there, everyone from Zadina to Suter to Peron to Kublik to whoever, sell at a set your standard of this is my price where I say good trade. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be set at great. Doesn't have to be set at steel. It doesn't have to be the the heroic return. But set your price at good trade, and then the moment someone meets that, you do it. Uh, but if they don't, then you don't. Because you know what? I'm not. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing if this team takes a step back to then move forward. You know, we have to be patient for a couple more years, whatever. Uh, but I think if they can avoid that, that would be better for the team. You don't need to break it all the way down to be good again but you don't avoid really good value. So I think you the must-sells are Bertuzzi and Verona just based on Verona's situation. Uh, and then anything else, you don't pull the trigger unless it's it, it kind of meets that standard. Yeah, I think really it's a one-step backwards, two-step forward type mentality. You're, you're selling off the assets that you can for good value, because you look at your division and you realize everybody else is a juggernaut and now is not the time. So it's it's realizing that the timeline needs to be delayed slightly because what is the point in being part of the, the brawl that is the Atlantic division right now? We could sit here and talk for two more hours about the Red Wings trade possibilities. We actually made the world's best audible, like the podcast's best audible call in history last weekend we we were planning on doing the trade deadline primer on sunday but we said you got to wait until after ottawa so we're going to do it on wednesday um and oh my god we're happy we did that it's not even a primer it's a trade deadline review part one yeah we're just in the right in the thick of it now but we have another episode coming post trade deadline like that friday night is what's planned so uh for the sake of not having too much exp- content expire in just two days here. Oh, uh, don't worry. Everything we said will be rendered completely irrelevant in the next 48 to 72 hours, just like happened last episode. <laughs> oh, 48 to 72 minutes. Let's be real. Starting with that, let's we're going to rapid fire through some uh, trades that have happened across the NHL. Anything that we don't cover or cover in depth will be covered in the trade deadline recap, so fret not. But uh, we talked a lot about um, Timo Meyer being traded to the Devils. The trade finally went through as we were editing. It's a mess. Uh, a 20- that trade literally feels like it happened two weeks ago. A hundred percent. Yeah, it feels insane. Uh, the Sharks got a 2023 conditional first. Uh, that's a, a top two protected. Uh, a 2024 second, a 2024 seventh. Shakir Mukamadulin, who is an interesting prospect. Fabian Zetterlund, who's an interesting young player. Andreas Janssen, Nikita uh, Okotluck for... Meyer and a, a bunch of guys in a fifth. Essentially, San Jose accepted a lot of pieces. Very quickly, my opinion on that one. Not a bad return for San Jose. There was no whopper there. There's no like grand slam player. And I think for one of the best, if not the best player at the trade deadline, I'm I'm kind of underwhelmed by San Jose's return in my mind. Yeah. History has taught us that when a team's return for a premium player is volume it rarely works out not never but rarely works out because the new jersey first round pick is going to be a late first round pick muka Medulin is a good prospect probably a middle pairing defenseman so zetterland I, I know has his his fans and um Okachuk also has his fans um so there's potential in those two guys but they're far from sure bets so yeah, if they hit on the first round pick and Mukamadulin turns into something, 
realistically, you're walking away with a middle six forward with the first round pick and a middle pair defenseman for one of the best offensive producers at five and five in the NHL. That's if I'm if I'm a San Jose fan, I'm not happy right now. Uh, we we talked about the Tampa acquisition of of Tanner Janot. You know, in my mind, overpay. But they, if you're going for it every year and you know the likelihood of those picks turning into players, I can see the justification. I think with that, it's understandable, but still an overpay in my mind. Uh, Toronto, very quickly, acquired Jake McCabe, Sam Lafferty. Uh, they also, who else? They traded up here, Engvall. They brought in, they brought Luke Shen back. Uh, they made a ton of moves here. That's an interesting team. They have like, what, 100 defensemen now, all of them viable? Well, Rasmus Sandin to Wash. Yeah, R- Rasmus yeah. Sandin to Washington, Washington is the one that I missed there. Uh, Eric Gustafson they brought in. Eric Gustafson in a first uh, is, was the return. They've not not made moves. With the East kind of loading up, they've not lacked in, in making their own moves. I think it's interesting with where they've done it. Um, you see the kind of fallout from bringing in all of those defensemen and, and the moves they've had to make otherwise. I can't say I hate what they've done this trade deadline. No, I like what they've done. They they are a team that identified their needs and aggressively solved them. They solved the third line center issue with Ryan O'Reilly. They solved the fourth line issue by bringing in uh, Lafferty. They saw they lacked a lot of actual defensive ability on defense. So they brought in Luke Shen and Jake McCabe, who is under team control for a couple more years with salary retained so that Jake McCabe piece was a tidy piece of business. Worth noting, the Leafs have not made the playoffs since they had another McCabe on the blue line. So (laughs) they're trying to get that juju going there. He is, uh, Toronto was the only team not on his no trade list. He had every, or uh, not, sorry, the only Canadian team not on his no trade list. Interesting. Yeah. So dude yeah. wants his money. He hates that income tax. Yeah. yeah. So it was a it was a tidy piece of work uh, by Kyle Dubas. So if it doesn't happen for the Leafs this year, it, it is going to be very hard to fault Dubas for it. Uh, there is a lot else that happened. Pulley Yarvi went to Carolina, as we mentioned. Uh, they love their reclamation projects. Yeah. Just scrolling through here. Uh, Matthias Eckholm from Nashville to Edmonton, twenty or four percent retained. Uh, because he has term left in a, a six-round pick in exchange for Tyson Berry going back the other way. Reed Schaefer, a 2023 first and a 2024 fourth. Good on Ken Holland. That's a really good deal. Uh, you know, again, we've talked about the actual value of a late first-round pick relative to what people think that value is, and Ken Holland maximized here. Um, didn't give up anything premium. The 250000 retained just seems like the biggest waste of time I've ever seen. Like, is Nashville... That is one of their three retention spots for the next like three or four. Why? I I bet Edmonton has other designs in mind, and they said, "Well, they for Edmonton, it's fine. Who cares? They get salary retained. Nashville's wasting two hundred fifty thousand on one of their retention slots." But either way, I really like the move for uh, Edmonton. Uh, Ekholm is exactly what they needed on that blue line, and they did not have to give up uh, a king's ransom to get it. Gustav Nyquist, uh, half retained for a fifth from Columbus. Just mentioning him because he's of interest to Red Wings fans. The Patrick Kane move finally happened. The Rangers got Patrick Kane. Uh, uh, the Arizona Coyotes played partner in there to help make it uh, make it happen. They got a conditional 2025 uh, third-round pick. Vilisari Yarvi, his name's come up a lot recently, was involved in that trade. A 2023 conditional second that upgrades to a first, potentially in a 2025 fourth for that Kane move. 
last night, late last night, Jonathan Quick, who thought he was retiring uh, in beautiful Los Angeles, California, was traded, and he wasn't happy about it, to the Columbus Blue Jackets. Uh, LA acquired Jonas Carposalo and uh, Vlad Gavrikov. That trade finally moved for Jonathan Quick, a 2023 first that's conditional um, based on whether or not the uh, uh, LA makes the playoffs and a 2024 third. So LA is shoring up their goaltending. Lars Eller uh, got traded. Obviously, there was a Heronic deal. Shane Gostisbehere got traded in the midst of trying to cover the Heronic deal uh, uh, for a 2026 third-round pick. The Chikrin deal we talked about. We talked about the the rights to Eric Portillo a while back. Well, that got traded to LA as well. So again, uh, they're shoring up their goaltending. Teddy Bluger to Vegas. Nemesnikov to San Jose. And Michael Granlund for a second from Nashville to Pittsburgh. So quite, quite, quite a bit has happened uh, you would think that this is Friday afternoon. I can't believe there's still a day and a half left before this deadline is. What over. else can I mean, other than what we've talked about? Like, what else can possibly happen that would top this? All I can say is, whatever is going to happen, it's going. It's guaranteed to happen at about ten thirty p.m. tonight when this episode posts. So, if you think, "Wow, it's been quiet a couple hours," it's because we've been recording. But hey. I, that's a joke. I am not going to complain. This is the most newsy episode we have had in the history of the show. Any bad timing has been undone just by all of this happening before we record with that. That is the main show. We are going to, um, move to overtime now, which is brought to you again by our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. If you want to support the show again, the overtime uh, bonus episodes, which record right after these, the winged wheel podcast discord, the giveaways, including, uh, oftentimes tickets to Detroit Red Wings home games. Uh, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of benefits and it really is what helps support the show. So, uh, do subscribe if you're willing to support patreon.com slash winged wheel podcast. We don't know, uh, how much of this is going to be, uh, you know, viable long-term. So we might not answer as many questions today. The next couple episodes are going to be a little crazy, but we are going to take some. Uh, Paul Breda says, I believe Stevie traded Philip after witnessing back-to-back poor games in crunch time scenario sold high based on season to date. Who else did he see get exposed in Ottawa that may be next? Everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Detroit Red Wings. It's, I don't like, I don't disagree. I don't think those two games helped Heronic, but I don't think Steve Eiserman said, okay, now I'm going to go deal Heronic. I don't think it was a knee jerk reaction. When you see it, when you see the value come across the table that Vancouver was willing to part with kind of makes it a no brainer. You, yeah. And you kind of have to have that thought in your mind for a while. There is a chance that Vancouver calls with an insane offer and it's brand new. And you're like, well, I have an hour to think about this and you just kind of have to do it when that opportunity arises. But I agree in that the Ottawa games had an impact. I don't know necessarily that that was like a last straw for Heronic. I think the, I think what you're dead on is, is selling high. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, the, I don't think we mentioned it. It was possible Heronic was injured in that second game. So oh, yeah. We talked about that often. He, he would might not have been relevant to a playoff run at this point, depending on the severity. Yeah. Uh, and then a question here also from Hockey Town Racing Academy. Uh, part of what they mentioned was being disappointed that after all of this, we could have gotten Chikrin for a diet Mountain Dew. Do you think the only reason Heron- uh, Eisman dealt Heronic was because of what Vancouver offered in return? I think that's a big part of it. Like mm-hmm. that trigger. I was talking to someone else today and I, you know, they were asking about the why behind it. And I said, big part of it just has to be the trigger price. There is a version like of the Red Wings who think that this year was an aberration or at least the peak of what we'll see from Philip Peronic, but they still don't sell, you know, for just a second round pick, but someone offers this and you, you kind of have to do it. 
some other questions here, and they're a little funny because a lot of them came in after the Ottawa game, but before the signing and the trade. Uh, Joseph Barry has an interesting one. Do you think we are going to see uh, Simon Edvinson at any point this season? There's a spot now. Yeah, there's yeah. a chance. I mean, not on the Edvinson plays on the left, but you know, Sherratt can move over. There's a way to make that work. Quite possibly, depending on what happens over the next couple of days. Um, I think it's more of a chance now than maybe there was a day ago. At least to get him a feel for what the next level is. Clint Banesh says, last week you referenced that the East is a Thunderdome, but that being the case, would that produce a higher level of compete for those when they are heading towards the final? Also, after these last two days, can we please trade everyone who won't be re-signed next season? I'm glad that I was busy these last two nights and not be able to watch the games. Clint, off to a good start. Yes and no. Obviously, the East has a way tougher path to get to the Cup Finals, but that also means they're going to be way more exhausted and banged up when they get to the Cup Finals, which gives the West an advantage. Uh, Adam Lang says, we got dummied, much like what I assume happens to Evan when he plays League. Who do you mean, buddy? Oh, God. No one, because I'm trash. Uh, Also from the Winged Wheel podcast night earlier this season against the Wild, I believe a video is being recorded. Are there any plans to turn this into into a montage of sorts from that evening? Yes, uh, our uh, good friend and uh, content producer Andy Molson put together a phenomenal video and we will be releasing that soon. Once all the uh, hubbub of trade deadline dies down, uh, it'll probably be a good time uh, to do that. Uh, Robert Wood, and again, uh, credit to Robert, this was submitted 12 hours ago, so things have changed. says, what are the chances we still add this week? And what are the main differences between adding now and adding in the offseason? So I want to use this to address one thing that we didn't really talk about, which is the Red Wings aren't necessarily only bringing in picks. They could bring in players here. Uh, we talked about Chikrin. It could still be someone like Pareko. Uh, let's go complete crazy, and I have no information. Like, this isn't coming from anything, but what if they try to snatch one of uh, Thomas or Cairo from St. Louis uh, what are the chances that that, that that happens still, that Eisenman uses these assets to try to flip it into something a little bit more immediate? It's possible. I don't know what the appetite is given recent events and given the prices being paid for these players right now. I, I almost tend to lean to if Eisenman wants to, he should but in the offseason when maybe everything's a little more reasonable. But like I said, you have a billion prospects and a billion picks. They can acquire almost whoever they want to acquire if they're willing to pay the price. Joe Falzone says, uh, man, forget the deadline. How do you even handle this offseason? You sign Larkin, which happened, and what else? Cider, Raymond, Rasmussen, and Berggren are all up for new contracts. The following offseason, which really leaves room for only one additional top-end player, another mushy middle year. I don't think they were restricted to just those options. I think that this next day and a half, which, again, credit to Joe, this was almost 24 hours ago he posted, um, a lot is going to change in Detroit's cap structure between now and then, I feel. Yeah, you have to, I think whatever happens now, you have to kind of solidify that in the offseason or at least make a concerted move. If your reset is heavy and you're moving this timeline back, you know, multiple years, then you you have to do that in a serious way by adjusting your cap to anticipate that. Cider and Raymond's contracts are, are the main keys there. Like you need to get them in for team favorable deals to give yourself that flexibility over the next period of time. Honestly, sign them for as long as possible. Eight years for both, please. Plain and simple. Yeah. Um, I don't think, I, I think next year is going to be a mushy middle year, but not because they're going to be, I just don't see a, another outcome after having to sell this deadline. 
I feel like it's going to be a very similar offseason to this past year. Find your value signings that are actually good players. Don't go nuts unless you are getting a superstar because that's what they need. Um, I think the trade market might be explored a little more this offseason for all the reasons we already laid out. But yeah, I think it'll be a, a similar approach. Improve, but don't go so crazy to the point where you start making more Ben Schrott mistakes. All right. Um, <laughs> Ariel Rojo, uh, how are you guys doing? Anything fun or relaxing planned for this weekend? Yeah, whatever happens after we record on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> Saturday, I'm just going to lay on the floor in my bathroom in the fetal position for 12 straight hours. Thanks for asking. Okay. Um, there are plenty of comments here. And just because of the weird nature of the timing of this episode, and unfortunately for the commenters, a lot happened after they had submitted. We're going to wrap up there in the interest of time. We'd like to thank all of you for listening. Um, for all of you who support the show through Patreon, patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you. Uh, if you don't or can't, that's still okay. Obviously, um, just, just you tuning in means the world to us. If you're a new listener, uh, welcome. If you're a listener of old, thank you for, for tuning in. I hope this was a uh, fun one for you. Um, if another way you can support the show, leave us a rating. iTunes, sorry, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your show, subscribe. We're on YouTube as well. Um, that all helps quite a bit. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our name level sponsors on Patreon. Arjun Shanker, Eves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grand Foundation, Akefur, Bertuzzi's Missing Tooth, Nick Perks, Icon, Terry Driver of the Number 69 Cry, and Ryan Hennis, Banana Slam and Jamathong, Glenn Brabham, Aiden White, Keenan O'Donoghue, Johnny Burgers, Meals on Wheels, Matthew M. Rice, Croner's Left Knee, Babe Landiscog, Carl Bertana, Nanoluski, Chimmy, Chris P., Citizen High Five, Coyote Season Tickets in Tempe, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, Detroit Rob, uh, DJ Denton, uh, Evan Lobbyodler, Lobbyodler, Give Blood Fight Probert, Hassam Al Qasem, Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Joseph Barry, Kalen Wood, Kevin James, King Tone, Las Ensaladas Picantes, Marcus, Massive Wong, Evan Longsaber, Matt McKay, Matt Penzine, who's a brand new name level sponsor. Welcome to the Dub Dub Club, Matt. Michael Edlund, Nedelkovic, goalie number one, Nicholas Fritz, R.A., Scott Martin, Send It Seawolf, that's what I appreciate about you. Why do you always do this to me, Brad? Uh, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, number one Detroit Red Guys fan, A.A. Ron, Adam Rose, Antonio Gracias, Ben Barron, Noda Phillips, Zadina Whisperer, and proud member of the Jake Wellman Gritty Club, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, C.J. Wilkinson, Connor Leighton, Corey uh, Prida, Darren Fick, Philip Zadiz Nuts, George's Biggest Fan, Grand Rapids hockey guy, Griffey boy, James Laporte, Jeremiah Dobo, JM Rhapsody, John Evans, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quaz, Lieutenant Matt S of the Cheesebag Army, Linda Hull, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, O. Ophelia, Reed, Steven, Tatar Sauce, The Hodag, The Original Bertuzzi's Lost Tooth, and finally my favorite patron ever, Matt Keeler. Thank you all so much. I can't wait to see what breaking news comes out right after we post this. Enjoy the next couple days, folks. We'll talk to you after the trade deadline. Thanks for tuning in to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Be sure to check out wingedwheelpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find links to other ways to support the show, such as Patreon, official podcast apparel, and more. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at Winged Wheel Pod. And of course, the hosts at Brad Crisco, at Ryan Hanna WWP, and at Hockey Town Evan.